0: So, good evening. Nice to be with you all. I was looking forward to this retreat, not only for you, but for me as well. Your heart, my heart. And I was getting a little worried about myself the last couple of weeks. (laughs) I like, what's going on? I felt the great doors, steely doors, starting to shut down. And I thought, no, no, I think this is good. This is the challenge. You know, we all ha- get tested at some point. And I remember thinking the other night, well, you never, you always wondered what it would be like to be like Dr. King or mm, all these movements that were happening. Well, now is the time, right? <laughs> like, oh, this is what it feels like to try to be really strong or you know, lead a community and the. Oakland, or do these different things, and to try to keep your heart really open and really true. You know, like what is the truth here? And so, whenever I think of what is the truth, I come always back to compassion. It's like the one thing that I I believe in so much. And so, I want to talk about wisdom and compassion, and yeah, how do these work together and how do we live our lives you know there's a beautiful um sacred container that develops here often towards the end as people get ready to leave they start crying i don't want to go home i live with crazy people i hate my job i just want to move here right (laughs) like this every day quiet great food you know (laughs) teachings every night Yeah, yeah i really understand we create a refuge here and then how do we take this refuge, how do we build it inside our own heart and then carry it? How do we carry this lamp of love in the darkness or the times that we're living in? And there's always been dark times. It's not there's nothing new to this. <laughs> that we can say. We you know, this is called samsara. And uh it hasn't changed in a really long time, you know, and so here we are and our great quest is to try to find the truth and to hold that, and to keep awakening our heart and to keep moving forward in the face of whatever appears, in whatever form it appears. You know, greed, hatred, and delusion—okay—in all of its forms, on every level. Like, how do we, how do we walk through? So it was important for me. I feel that. Tomorrow I'm going to move the statue around so that you could have a look at Prajna Paramita. I actually needed Prajna this week, so there was some direct transmission in Prajna Paramita, this great uh, archetype. Prajna means wisdom, Paramita is perfection. She's the mother of the Buddhas. It's in a feminine form, and the mudra is like this, and it's. In some ways it's almost we holding the light and the dark. <laughs> That's the perfection of wisdom, right? We hold these two these two places. The ten thousand joys and the ten thousand sorrows. It takes a fierce heart to to walk with that that truth. You know, we we somehow really want life to be pleasant only. (laughs) Don't we? Like, I'll just get to that moment where I have the perfect day, the perfect meal, the perfect sleep, the perfect skyline, (laughs) the perfect weather. If only we could hold on to that. But then inevitably there's change. And so this compassion is able to be with us. And I call compassion the great chief. And I'll tell you why. I named it that when I was on a five-month retreat. I felt like I went to the depths of something. And then I I felt like, ah, compassion. I started bowing to it as a great chief. And a chief can be feminine or masculine. It's just the word that I like to use, a great power. And um, when I first came into practice, I was 23 years old and I did my first retreat, I started practicing. So I I realized it went almost 20 years now. And I immediately, after doing several retreats and and going along, I started to study with Tibetan teachers. And I was very drawn to their emphasis on compassion. It was a huge focus of not only compassion, but bodhicitta, this quality that means we are, are... practice becomes for the benefit of others. And I would hear the Dalai Lama talk about it. and I would hear the 17th Karmapa talk about it. And I would hear Minja Rinpoche talk about it. These are three really beautiful teachers that I was very drawn to and started reading and studying and going to their teachings. And, and they would talk about this compassion. And I was so inspired by just Tibetans warrior hearts. Right, because I thought these people remind me <laughs> a lot of my ancestors. Wow, been through the depths of, of something, and they still had this ability, this spirit that was so committed to truth, right? That could hold this, you know, these great sorrows with just this, this heart of uh, unbreakable, fierce heart, you know, that could, could inspire the whole world in some way. So it was their inspiration, especially the Dalai Lama, that got me really thinking of compassion and wanting to study it because I always understood it innately in myself. I had this, even as a very young person, I was very attuned to the suffering around me and there was always this desire to alleviate it. I didn't actually know what it was that I was feeling but this growing up in the family that I grew up around and the people in the community, there was this, the suffering, and I was as a child overwhelmed by it. I was very sensitive. Actually, I feel a lot of people are very sensitive, and uh, we can get hurt the most because we're trying to understand this human experience. You often know, worry about really young children coming up now, you know, like, oh, there's some that are sensitive to everything food, light, smells. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I really understand. Uh, their, their dilemma or their experience and so um, I didn't know what to do with all these feelings of care about what I was seeing and I, I didn't know how to interpret it and I had this experience when I was 13 that really took hold and I've shared this story a few times about when I was 13 years old I um Actually, had was had this boyfriend, a little boyfriend, it was very sweet. We we're really like best friends. It was Valentine's Day. I had no money, and so a friend of mine said, "Why don't you just steal something?" And I was like steal something, I never thought of that, right? <laughs> she was so excited about the idea, right? So I wasn't really good at it, I went into a store and grabbed a necklace, tried to walk out and got in trouble, and they took me to the police station, and my mom, they called, and you know, she was a single parent at work and was so mad, right? Like, what? I don't need these issues with you right now. <laughs> so then I had to do all this community service, right? That was my sentence, uh, hours and hours of community service. And so my mother was so angry with me and she said, I'm going to take you to Glide and you're going to work it off every weekend. I had like, I don't know, like eight weekends in a row I had, to, I had to go. And and I was like, okay, you know, I, I felt bad about it. But at the same time, I was kind of excited to be at Glide. Um, you know, back in the day, for those of you who are not from this area glide church came about by this beautiful uh, reverend cecil and it's in the tenderloin probably the i would say one of the most difficult troubled neighborhoods there's a lot of suffering oh tremendous amount of homelessness and drugs and prostitution and this was really bad 20 years ago You know, when I think even longer than that, 30 years ago, I was 13. It was really bad. It was kind of an abandoned part of, you know, you just didn't go there. Right. And then. So CISO graded this church up in the middle of it and was like services to help people, all kinds of services, outreach services, drug treatment services, love services, singing, gospel music services, helping, helping, rejuvenating people. And so they had at that time had started a soup kitchen to serve meals. So, so I was to go there early on Saturday and Sunday morning and I was to clean the kitchen and we would make the food and then serve the, the people coming and so my mother, I remember, dropped me off at, like, 8 o'clock in the morning. And it was already, like, night it, it seemed like it was already nighttime there. I mean, it was full-on action at 8 o'clock in the morning. I was like, oh, my God, there's already people out and mm-hmm. women now doing their thing and cars, you know. It was like, wow, okay, so here we are. But I was really happy, and I went into the kitchen there. And there was all the people who worked there were so sweet. They were all people who had come through there and had been through the depths of hell, you know, former addicts, people who had, were on doorsteps, and they would say, some of them had these stories, like, Jesus came and rattled me out of my sleep and walked me to the door, you know, they would be telling me this, and they would look down at me, and I would think, and some had scars and missing teeth, but I fell in love with them all, like, right there. I was like, ah, oh, because I felt this spirit of aliveness. Like, when you've, you know, almost died many times, there's some kind of spirit in you that you you wake up, you know? And when you've gone to that level of suffering and you, you've you come back and you're committing to something, not only to, to a new life, but then service. There was something so beautiful about being with this group of people. I just, I was, yeah, I, I was so joyful. And they all... I was pretty young then, but I was pretty tall and very mature. I was only 13, but I had a kind of an old soul. They kept calling me baby girl, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was happy to be there. So we were cooking, and uh, we started cleaning first before, and, then we, and I was wondering, okay, what's going to be for lunch? And it was very meager, okay. They had, everything was donated to Glide. They had no money, okay. So they had all this old equipment, <laughs> like military equipment, that was donated, but it was working. And then they had all this donated food. And mostly it was from all the day old bakeries. So, oh, they had all this bread, all this bread. And then they had piles and piles of hot dogs. <laughs> and then these humongous cans, I don't even know where they got these cans of pork and beans, you know, those old school pork and beans. And we had this huge can opener. I was like, opening all these cans right and they looked like they were like 30 years old i mean it was like dust on them and i remember being like okay this is it these hot dogs all right this bread and this huge amounts of pork and beans this is lunch all right so we started getting it all in the water and heating it up and and um and people would come through the line, and then they could, there's a dining room they could stay in, or they can, most people took it off a styrofoam plate and they, they went out. And I didn't really think, I didn't have any idea about people, how many people would come. So before, it was almost 12 o'clock, and I, I went outside, and then out of nowhere, it seemed like overnight, or within seconds, people, there was a line all the way around the block. And I was really surprised by that, actually. And it was one of those days, like today, cold <laughs> and not so rainy, but really foggy. And there was people sort of huddled up against the uh, the wall, the church, around the line. There was sort of, and there was what really surprised me was so many families with kids, and I didn't expect to see that. And um, so I was in charge of putting the beans on the plate. So they would come by, and then the cook came out, and he said, okay, they get two pieces of bread, two hot dogs, two scoops of beans. That was it, and they would come by and like that, and so I was scooping beans, and I was trying to cheer people up, like, hi, but nobody was looking up at me. I didn't think anybody really looked me in the eye. It was just, like, down. And so I felt a sorrow of that, like there was maybe shame, or it was just some, it was just not... It was cold. People were hungry. It just wasn't, even though I felt happy inside, I felt the, the, sort of the heaviness of, of that. And so I still was smiling. I was still offering. And so people started coming really fast. and We, we were speeding up. And the line was just coming and coming. And as we were going along here, the cook came out. He went outside. He came back in. he goes, yeah, one piece of bread, one hot dog, one scoop of beans now. And I was like, oh, they're running! we were running out. All that food is gone. It seemed like we made so many hot dogs. So much bread was back there. And sure enough, we were running out. And so while many more people are coming, many more people are coming, and then suddenly he said, Spring, you have to only do half a cup of beans now. You need, we need to cut all these in half. So it was like people were getting less, and then we ran out. And then once they kind of made that announcement, people left... And I sat down after that outside, and I started crying. I was sobbing for a long time outside, and I was just thinking about all the kids in the line. And I was like, well, where did they go? Where are they going? Or what if, you know, some had their rips in their jackets, and they just didn't look well cared for. Their parents didn't look well cared for. They didn't look well cared for. And I just hit me right in the heart, and this very deep feeling of wanting to alleviate that. And I had seen suffering; I seen it It wasn't like I hadn't been exposed to that, but there was something about the need for a simple meal that got my heart. (laughs) Like they stood in line all that time, and some didn't even get a meal, and. It just touched me, and it was in that moment that I feel like real, genuine compassion was born because the insight that I had and I want to talk about tonight was this insight that really got me was that I genuinely loved these people. That is what did it. It was like I loved them. It wasn't even any doubt in my mind. I loved them, and I wanted to alleviate this type of suffering. I didn't, I was like hunger and poverty in my heart just move forward and I remember thinking that thought how do you love people you don't know (laughs) how do you do that and I thought well it's just happening to me (laughs) I love them it wasn't even a it was like every fiber of my being and out of that love the sorrow of not being being a child and not having control and not being able to alleviate it some yes we're able to give some food but not not the ultimate suffering you know and I, I worked there for um, those weeks, but there was very big shift in me after that, actually, because in some way, some framework, some inner something happened where I was more attuned to what is happening. And as I went on as a teenager, I began studying psychology to try to understand the mind and the heart and this feeling of compassion that I was always drawn to to that that feeling and, and, and trying to understand. How is this wisdom? And so we might get a mistaken view that compassion and wisdom are separate. Oh, now we do heart practices, but that has nothing to do with wisdom. But actually they're deeply interwoven because compassion actually is insight. <laughs> it's insight on how to meet the truth of life. And when we have this quality and it's important to recognize that in the dharma there's two great truths and i shared this in a small group we had this great conversation um where people were asking but spring what if all of this is empty and there is no self what are why are we doing compassion and metta (laughs) right am i not reinforcing a sense of self here right isn't this against like kind of against the the teaching, what are, why, I'm, I'm confused. And I remember having that same analysis, right? I thought there was no self. Why are we sitting around going, may I be happy imagining our five-year-old selves, right? Are we, is this good, is this not good, what is this? And I think it's really important that when we talk about compassion, we understand the two truths that the Buddha um, put out for reflection, and that is that there is a, an ultimate truth The ultimate truth is, if I look here, I'm just, it's moving particles of light, (laughs) we're all made of stars, right? Quantum physicists would look at this striker and go, ah, yeah, nothing here, Uh uh-huh, right? It looks like it, but not really, right? (laughs) The quantum level, that is very true, right? That is a truth that can, you know, I think with... Buddhism and neuroscience is having a love affair because they like anal- you know, the analysis of that truth, like emptiness, huh. Something appears here for a period of time. We call it a striker. <laughs> right? We make that up. Okay? And then at some unknown, undesignated moment, poof, this disappears, goes back into the great you know, unknown. Something else then is created. So this absolute truth is true it is truth but then we have the relative level what is the relative level the relative level is i'll say my name is spring we're at spirit rock it's thursday (laughs) right we make up all this stuff right on because we have to navigate right We'll say it's a dharma talk. We're on the, you know, we we make of all these things, right? And that's a conventional level. And that conventional level is really important because if I hit my arm, wow, it hurts. Something is alive and feel suffering. So we can't negate that level. There's something actually here. And if one gets caught in the universal side of life without seeing the, the relative side, they become someone who goes, Well, everything is everything. Who cares about the polar bears? It's all disappearing, right? Why pay our bills? It's a construct, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, no one owns anything, right? It's all made up, right? And there, an aloofness begins to appear in the mind, a separation. A negating, actually, of the relative level, which is filled up with the laws of karma and causes and actions, and actually our our actions mean something. On the relative level, it's important to understand that this is true and that the ultimate is true. Now, if we get too fixated in the relative level, we miss the great truth of the emptiness, of the neuroscience, of wow, the vastness of the galaxies, who we truly are, that this is an appearance of something, right? We miss that, because we get too fixated. So it's very important that we balance these two. We have to kind of walk between these two truths and holding them both. But here we are on the relative level, and it's the relative level that we do compassion and meta practice. It's on that level of ourselves, this conventional self, that feels hurt, is the level that we are reacting to, that we're responding to. Right, so this is very, very important to understand that I think to have deep compassion is to understand both sides here that yes, this is a a place that we are working on the conventional level, but we understand as time goes on of understanding more of no-self, emptiness, that things are appearing and disappearing. So both of these sides are attended to. And I remember once I was at a teaching in New York City with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and he was talking about to have real compassion you have to understand emptiness, otherwise you'll die of all the suffering, basically, right? It's like it's too much. It's like, oh my gosh, ah, open it. If we were to really open to the vastness of bombs and wars and human, it would be so overwhelming that we have to kind of hold it in the ultimate view that this is one chapter in a huge cycle, right? And it helps us open to it when we look at it from a cosmic level, right? We're able to expand, open the heart, and then pay very close to details to our, our, our actions here in the conventional level. They actually matter. It's in this conventional level that we get free. The human birth is considered, uh, in the Mahayana tradition, and the Vajrayana tradition, tradition is c- considered an amazing opportunity to wake up. And they say all the Buddhas have to come and take birth in a human form to attain awakening. Because we have just the right amount of pain and just the right amount of pleasure. If we were in the high deity deva realms, is too happy. It's kind of like Australia or something on the beach. Everyone's just ah oh, checking out, right? <laughs> But if there's too much suffering, you also can't wake up, right? It's too, you're just, the grind of life is too compelling. You have no opportunity. We see people on this planet who they don't have time to meditate. Why? Because they the poverty and the grind just to get a meal to put on clothes is all-consuming. So we can see these, these polarities here too, right? But there's some middle path that we can walk in between, and we use the extremes, right when we go to wanting to check out or when we're overwhelmed that uh, there's something about the middle the middle place so compassion is insight it arises, and insight isn't something you can think about. you actually can't think your way through to compassion. You could see the the objective of it and the value of it, but to actually have an insight, it comes through the heart, like all insight arises. If we were to think, if we thought that we could have awakening by thinking about it, we would be there. We're thinkers. (laughs) doesn't really work like that, sadly. (laughs) We actually, it's an intuitive insight comes through, it's an intuitive understanding that comes out of the present moment it doesn't come from here. It comes from deep in your bones, in your heart, in the body. And mostly it comes when we're sitting in the present moment and it's just a wave of clarity. Ah, yes. And we have insight into the nature of suffering, we have insight into impermanence. We have an insight into egolessness. Ah, I see the construct, I see the story. Right, and we, th- these insights slowly, as they take root in us, they chip away. At all, our delusion, and insight into compassion is real. It dawns on people as a response to the suffering of our lives, the fragility of our lives that we all live with. Right? It's like we live on this house of cards, but we pretend it's really stable. (laughs) Like right? We'll just get our nook and bear down. We'll never get old. (laughs) It is a kind of that illusion. When I look at my passport, it really is strange, even being a Buddhist, being like, oh my God, it's changing. I don't even look like that anymore. It's like, of course, no matter how much wheatgrass and yoga, (laughs) you know, I'm still going to get old and die, right? There's still a shock to that. Like, no, that's for everyone else, (laughs) right? It's a a kind of like a way that we protect ourselves from truth. And, and, this period of time we're entering is where the mass now have to fall off. We'd actually, there's no time to lose, no time to wait. Like there's just some kind of a radical waking up now. We could call it the fourth turning. My dear friend Joanna Macy calls it the fourth turning. We've had these three great turnings, the Theravada, the Buddha first taught. They say it was a huge wheel turned. right? The earth quaked in four directions. The wheel of truth was set in motion. Then we had the great Mahayana revolution, which was like for the benefit of all beings. It was this other level of teachings. And then that third level is the Vajrayana, and this kind of shamanic level, of and the, and the tantric level, where we take everything as fuel for the path, right? We say non-dual, all, all is good, the, the hell and the heaven. We just chew them up and walk straight through it, right? We use it as fuel, we use delusion as fuel and now it's the fourth turning which is the the great gaia the maha gaia this connection to earth itself to our living system and i want to i want to share a couple of things with you with uh, around that because one of the things about compassion is the insight that comes with it is this radical understanding of interconnectedness this is the fundamental truth of compassion. This is why compassion is powerful, because when we understand that we're connected to everything, we walk on this planet much differently. We relate to every being that we see differently. And I love how His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, he always says, no one is ever a stranger. It's like, why would I think that? (laughs) You know? Everyone is always um, a friend, so I have been, for a long time, really interested in nature. And um, there's this ecologist called Forester um, Peter Wolhabin. And he wrote this book, The Hidden Life of Trees, which we've had The Hidden Life of Plants and all kinds of stuff. But he um, basically has coined this term, the wood wide web. And he has done all this research with trees, how the entire forest is talking to each other, and sick trees receive benefit from healthy trees, that the, the forest actually is in tune. And he writes this, he says, um, no tree is an island, and no place is this truer than the forest. Hidden beneath the soil of the forest understory is a labyrinth of fungal connections between the tree roots that scientists call the mycorrhizal network. He calls it the wood wide web. And he says, these connections are made by the filaments of fungi that grow in and around plant roots and produce many of the forest mushrooms we know and love. They bond trees so intimately that the more you learn about them, the more it is a struggle to view any tree as an individual. Forest trees and their roots fungi are more or less a commune in which they share resources in a a fashion so unabashedly socialist that I hesitate to describe it. <laughs> so they're all working together, this, this, this connection, and he, he has this beautiful story about these two beautiful trees and how they, one was helping the other, and it, was, and it really makes me cry. It's like the whole forest working together. And I think that this is the level of truth that we're waking up to. This is why it's the fourth turning like, oh right, Gaia, this living system that we're connected to. And this, you know, this kind of understanding is something the indigenous always knew. (laughs) It's not new, you know, this isn't new. And I, and I, for some of you may know, I spent a year living in Peru. And for 10 of those months, I lived in the, believe it or not, the upper Amazon forest with the Shipibo community. And I was very interested in understanding the wood wide web. from it was something about plants and trees and nature. You know, people often think that Buddhism is very intellectual. It's a misunderstanding. We interpret it that way through the lens of our Western minds. But the Buddha lived naked on the earth for years to wake up. And his most battle, sick, scared, probably heroic moment, he called on the earth to bear witness, right? He called on this earth, like, no, you, I, I have a right to wake up. Earth, you have seen what I have gone through. <laughs> Under a tree, here, years, right? Who knows what those years were like? He almost killed himself. This was a very devout person. And the forest and the earth, I think it's often it can get overlooked. And so when I was in the forest learning from the Shipibos, and the Shipibo people are an indigenous tribe that live around the Ukulele River. They're known to be these pharmacists and healers, and I just was very drawn to them for years. I started to study um, Amazonian plants and traveling around and and trying to understand how we can learn from Gaia, how Gaia, if we are elements, then we can receive healing from elements. Like the trees that can heal other trees, I'm a tree. (laughs) water, <laughs> minerals, and I felt this connection with the earth, and so I wanted to go there, and I had started going there eight years ago. But I wanted to share with you that oftentimes my teachers, these 80-year-old Shipibo women, they would often say, Primavera, that was my name in Spanish. They would say, sit and listen to the trees. You know, I was always asking questions, or you know, how we are. How does that happen? What's going on here? You know, they're like, just listen. And often they would spend hours just on decks in the middle of the complete forest, <laughs> right? And like, so comfortable, actually. No power, no electricity. You know, there was this at homeness that I found there, studying, being with the community, and I learned that this was indeed valuable. This knowledge of The wood wide web and my connection to it. And many people are being drawn to go down into jungles and, um, you know, because something's awakening there, right? It's like the plants are trying to help this great turning that we're in to help us remember our true nature. So the animal world, the plant world works together. There's an innate compassion. Knowing that trees are out there helping other trees is touching me. Right to think that two redwood trees could help each other to grow. (laughs) It's like, ah, this is innate in us. Compassion is in us. It's just that it's obscured. It's obscured. It's the jewel in the heart of the lotus. That's the great teaching there, the jewel in the heart. It's us. It's already in us. You're not getting something you don't have by doing metta. The metta is already in you. What we're doing is removing the layers that have accumulated, like Temple said, the barnacles on the soul right <laughs> we we gotta we gotta you know slowly extract that off so that the clarity is there again, and also, you know when I was living in in the forest, it was everything was growing, and I think about being in the Amazon, it's hot, it's like you know I was living on a deck with screens that was about it. I was just life on top of life on top of life. Everything was growing green, vibrant, just like grow, grow, grow. And I felt that spirit a lot this growing, this awakening, this blooming. It's like the lotus flowers on bloom. Did you know one lotus can bloom for a thousand years? Right? A thousand years. How do, where does it bloom? In the muddiest of waters. <laughs> and that's kind of us. You know? In muddy waters, we use those muddy waters to bloom. You don't need to get rid of your problems, actually. That's the problem, trying to get rid of them, right? We spend years trying to get rid of problems. They don't ever go away. (laughs) Sad. I hate to say that. (laughs) We just get more wisdom by working with them. We wake up through them. If we're willing to use that as fuel, and to feel the innate compassion that's all around us. Also, I have a very strong, I was thinking a lot about animals and another story that the Dalai Lama was telling one time. He was saying about when he was a little boy, he was in, still living in the Potala Palace in Tibet. And um, they were getting ready, it was getting really cold, so they were moving households they would move him to a summer residence and when it was too cold there and they would spend three months there and they would go back and forth and he said there was this tiny bird's nest outside his window you know and he would sit out the window and he saw and he had thought that the mother had abandoned them because they were these little baby birds were crying and crying and crying so he um decided that he would take them in his little, you know, they were walking across. You know, they walked and they were carrying him on this little thing. He was only four years old. And so he thought, I'll take these birds and they'll go to my summer place and I'll take care of them. They'll be my pets, my friends. So he um, takes them and they are leaving. It was right before they were actually heading out. And so here they go heading out. And suddenly the mama bird, it was this big crow, comes <coughs> and is looking for the birds and they're already moving and they see this bird like kind of hovering and hovering and it's squawking and the little babies are squawking (laughs) and it starts squawking and this holiness didn't notice this for a long time but the bird spent like two or three miles walking over them. Finally, the bird finds, hovers over where its babies are and basically he's walking side by side, squawking really loud. And so his holiness said he looked out and it's like, oh, this must be the mother, right? And the little baby birds on hearing the mother squawking, squawking, right? They're talking to each other, like, here I am, here you are. And um, his holiness was, they would just kept going. And he said the bird was so determined. He'd never seen this kind of like... And its feet were getting uh, worn down from just like it was going behind and squawking and squawking. And so finally his holiness said, stop the whole thing. We've got to bring the bird and get the bird. And so they, somehow they got the crow. And anyway, the end of the story was they all arrived safely at the palace. And then he had them all together. But, <laughs> but what was touching to him, and he said at one moment he was crying, watching the mother would not give up risking, you know. All it was just like, I want my baby, <laughs> you know. That this compassion of animals, and found he found it to be very touching, and um, and how everything feels, everything is alive, and we we miss that aliveness when we're numb, and that's why I said in some way the numbness that we feel in our hearts is kind of the most disturbing because we don't feel the aliveness of things we don't feel our heart in resonance we don't feel the interconnection and our lives are are completely interwoven i want to i want to read something i don't know if i brought it all right um dr martin luther king he recognized this really young age. He said, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. He wrote that at like, around 30 years old. He saw that. that, And, of course, he saw that because he couldn't have done what he did unless he did see it. Because you wouldn't walk into hell unless you said, well, this is for heaven. This is for all of us, <laughs> right? I'm going to do it for love, right? I'm going to do it because I know that we're connected. And so um, this interconnectedness is, is part of the worldview which sees the oneness in all things. A similar term is interdependence. It's also used, um, and the interconnectedness is a, it's kind of a more of a contemporary word that sees that everything is in a web of life. Joanna Macy always says we are the nerve cells and the mind of a great being. And so we don't understand that, and so then that leads us to see everything as other, separate, Right, and we start to see things as separate, we start to be afraid of it, hate it, attack it. Right, we hate those people, those things that, and it, right? We don't recognize that we are from a single underlying source. How far you go in life depends on you being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and strong. Because someday you will have been all of these by George Washington Carver. And so this this innate compassion is sort of, it's at the fabric of things where we don't recognize it. Another th- story that I thought of that was really touching, I'm not, I'm not sure... It's actually a time when I was with Temple, and we were teaching a small retreat for teenagers at a center in San Jose, and they had this little farm attached to it. Do you remember that place, Temple, the little farm? And I remember it was before the retreat, and it had this little farm, and kids would come with their families, and it was almost like a petting zoo. It wasn't... It was... It was really sweet. It wasn't like some cruel place or anything like that. So when we were, I was walking along and uh, I heard this huge ruckus happen. It was like uh, this, this barn area, and I heard the worst type of squealing and this, this like pounding on doors and squealing. And I ran over there. I was like, "What is going on?" And I had that kind of fierce mama bear like somebody's hurting an animal right like what's going on like i'm gonna stop it because i i could get like that right if i see some kind of harm because it i want to alleviate that and so i was like what's going on and i went over there and i saw these huge pigs they were giant and they were running in circles there was like a u and the squealing was happening behind the door and they were running, and they were all running, and they were, <gasps> and they were starting to ram their heads in the door. And the squealing was the little piglets. And um, so I was like, "What's going on? What is this?" You know. And I could see them, and they were just, and they were so upset. And I remember they, one of the farm hands, he put down the little piglet, piglet and they had castrated them, right? So they had to do that for. I don't work on farms. I wouldn't be able to do anything remotely like that, but I guess they have to do those kind of things. And um, he put him down. And what touched me was that those, again, the compassion of those pigs, that they were going crazy hearing the screams and even drove me crazy, like running over there and being like, what? Why? And it really shook me up for a long time, actually, after that. It was like we went right to start the retreat, and I was just felt this compassion for the animals on our planet, like how sensitive they are to us, and how fragile they are, and how they have so much feeling. And um, again, it's like the baby bird story. Um, everything is alive, and that, and how are we when we open our heart, I would hope that our movements on this planet be one of alleviating suffering. (laughs) Like, can we use our practice to become people who can bring peace or bring a loving embrace that we we move out? I think the wisdom is, is that our actions become about lessening the suffering on this planet. And Compassion is hard because what it does is it asks of us to think of others. You know, so much of our lives we secretly want to just escape. This is a big one here. We really do don't want to be here. (laughs) How many people have thought about like I don't know? You know, we 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 really when people come to meditation practice, they're like, "Um, okay. Do I go to the light? When do I get to out of here? I, You know, like, I don't really want to be in this moment. I hate my life. I hate... It's like... And I just look at them, I go, honey, no. it's about being right here, right now, with your knee pain, with your bad job, with your relationship problems and your sorrow. I was like, the way is through. And this longing to escape makes us we, 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 we stunt our growth because we have shown up here and somehow that warrior and that's what makes compassion important because when you say I'm going to be here it's like you commit to something I'm going to show up in my life and not only am I going to try to show up I'm going to try to show up with a warm heart <laughs> wow this is a challenge <laughs> It's challenging here, isn't it? Just being on retreat. Look how easy it is to get into judgments right here and we're in kind of like Shangri-La, right? On some level, out in the world, it's really challenging, you know? And so this need to try to escape, 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 escape is delusion. This The way is through. And this is the fierce heart. This is where compassion is needed. It's like, okay, I'm going to open to this. I'm going to feel this. I remember another time in New York City that I feel like talking a lot about the Dalai Lama. He's been such a teacher for me in compassion. He was giving this talk and he was like, some days I know I'm the Dalai Lama, but I don't feel like being the Dalai Lama. And I really resonated with that. Like, yeah, here he is supposed to be carrying this huge burden of his people, right? <laughs> the world stage, a Nobel Prize winner, always having the right thing to say in the right moment, you know. And he was like, Some days I just don't feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then I, I do compassion. It's like, okay. And he talked about his the how challenging his life was. He's like, I really didn't have a childhood. It was the burdens of all my people being killed right away, you know, I had to contend with. It was like all these challenges, right? It's like, oh my God, what a heart to be able to say, I'm not escaping, I'm gonna keep holding this light. You know, not only for me, but for the benefit of all beings. One big heart can change, can spark a movement. One person, one clear Mind, one clear person dedicated to truth and love no matter what, willing to endure whatever can inspire all of us because it's in us, right? That that dedication to love and compassion. I mean, I try to imagine what else there is to do here on this planet. Like, cl- buy things? Okay. Well, they're all... You know, if we look on the quantum level, they don't even exist. You know, it's like, okay, we know that's not it. I, on some level, we start getting that, like accumulation. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. But what else is there? What do you want to do with your life? Like, you know, that's what the Tibetans are saying. Here's what to do. Wake up. <laughs> what do you do with your time? We can escape. There's no escape valve. The only way through is to open. We only really have one choice here. Unconsciousness or we open, right? This is like, and in some level, it just, the intensity came up, right? It's like the stove just, we cranked up the stove, right? As a collective community, we're doing this. The world is trying to speed up. Otherwise, things wouldn't be happening the way they are, right? We can't really go back to sleep. So I wanna tell one last story about the great chief that I call compassion, so I'm going end this talk. And uh, I was, a few years ago, I got really, really burnt out and I was really tired and I had started this huge community in Oakland, the East Bay Meditation Center, and I was, and I was working all the time there. We, we're, our center runs on generosity. <laughs> And so I was teaching, I would vacuum the floor, teach a class, gather everything, go to a meeting, teach another, you know, I was just getting really, really tired and I was, and so I decided to go on a five month meditation retreat and I'd felt the Crestone Mountains in Colorado call me. I started having dreams about those mountains, the Sande de De Cristo Mountains, you know, they're they're, there and I just felt this huge draw to go there. And I thought, I'm gonna do my retreat there. And those mounds, and there's this little Tibetan center that had about, it only fit about eight people, and it was in the Kagyu lineage. And um, and I thought, okay, I'm gonna go there and do my retreat. So I went there. I decided to take five months off, just practice, study, do a lot of purification practices. I felt the need to just kind of cleanse myself and do purification. And I was doing thousands of prostrations every day. <laughs> it's really intense. And uh, I was doing mantras, and I was doing all these visualizations, and then I would sit for hours and think of compassion and and, and evoking the quality, sort of about doing what we're doing here, right? The forms of metta and those kind of things. And then I decided that I, at some point, this nun, I was getting a little tired of being in the center, actually, in this. There was a monk there who ran it, and he was really chatty. He was from Bhutan. And he always wanted to practice English and he would like find me wherever I was and be like, spring, this is the, and I was like, ah, I wanna be alone, okay. So I heard about this magical cabin from a nun who said she did a three month retreat. She's like, if you wanna do real practice, go into a cabin alone. And I was like, I wanna do that. So I went and looked at the cabin. I was really lucky, it was way up, owned by a Zochin community uh and it was a totally isolated wild land it was an outhouse they brought up water a caretaker would bring up water and I had a delivery of some food at a little organic store they helped yogis and so I bought a whole bunch on credit and then they said "We'll we'll meet you on the road once a week and bring you fresh vegetables and fruit and I was like great and um so i made my way up in this cabin and i was lucky i was the only cabin that had a little solar panel so for a few hours i had light at night and then i had a tiny fridge that it would operate it was a little solar panel but it was good enough and so i i was like okay i'm ready i'm gonna be my own teacher my own healer i could do this it's me and the dharma and mother nature right and so the caretaker. He jived, and I didn't have a phone, internet, nothing. He drives the caretaker, who's kind of crazy. His name was Champa. was a little zany. He was like, all right, here's your water. I'll be back in 12 days. You're going to be all right. And I was like, I'll be great. And he wasn't even down the hill. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and then you want to talk about purification. I didn't even, it, I just call it my vision quest. It was so sacred. Oceans of tears began to fall. Water from gallons began to pour out of my eyes for hours and hours. There's grief that must have been, I called it African grief. It had its own life. It would take over my whole body. It would wail and sing gospel hymns as it was releasing ancient, I would see chains and all kinds of things in the and I kept bowing and doing prostrations, trying through it just to take refuge and compassion. And all night, this terror gripped me. I was completely alone. It was pitch black dark. I would close all, it was a tiny little cabin, maybe the size of like your room and maybe a little bigger in the little kitchen area. And I would hear all the wild sounds, you know, and I, I was convinced any moment I would be torn to shreds, if not by a bear. Crazy redneck people, or I don't know, I was just imagining. And here I was, I would think, Spring, you live in East Oakland, that's way worse than here. (laughs) Why are you so scared, right? You don't feel anything there, you're always walking around there, right? And I, it was, I couldn't even sleep, the terror in my mind. I'd stopped eating a lot, and it was just purification. And at night, the only way I could even get an hour of sleep, I would tuck these huge pillows, I had these little sitting pillows, and I would put them, there was a tiny little skinny bed. I would put the pillows behind me, and I would imagine they were these giant bosoms of Mother Earth. And then I would squeeze down like this, and I would imagine these big black arms around me, and then I would be like, okay, am I in compassion? Okay, I could sleep. And because of this so much, after two weeks, I thought, no one could survive this. No one could believe this much pain could be existing, the t- wave after wave. And so finally, my unceasing prayer became compassion. And I started to understand like something so deep was unraveling, something so primal that I had to be that alone. No one could have seen me go through that. I would have shut down. That was, that was something that happens when you're alone on the earth, I started to think about all the Buddhas and all the people who had ever woken up like, my gosh, they must have met these energies, howling and screaming and wailing and terror. And I just every day I just got up and it was compassion. The great chief, please come, please, please. And if I lost it for a little while, it was hell. But then when it would come back, I could endure it. And I would just hold. I spent three months like this as, you know, it. It was unwinding. And I look back on that time now and I can't believe it. I'm like, oh my God, who would have endured that? But it just happened. I didn't plan on that. I thought I was going to have fun. That was the memory of like great times. And there was some of that. But also, what I learned out of that was this unbelievable faith. Like, now I have this unshakable faith and compassion. At least I feel like I can meet. I can meet life in a different way. And I don't know what's to come or what will happen to me, but I know that those moments there, that me calling on that quality, um, I understood why the Tibetans emphasized that. I got it in that moment. I was like, oh, only this could have helped me deal with that amount of intensity. You know, so, so we could take refuge in compassion the more that you have compassion, the more you're able to be present. The more you're able to be present, the more wisdom you see. The more wisdom leads to more insight into compassion. You see how they feed each other? The more compassion, the more wisdom. <laughs> they actually are the wings here. This is insight. Compassion isn't separate from wisdom. It is wisdom. It is wisdom. Right, it is a response to the truth of life It's the only response that makes sense anymore um, so so yeah so let's all bow to the great chief <laughs> in us and yeah we will just sit for a moment and then remembering that that chief is inside every human being it's inside all of us Inside everything that is the trees, the forest, the plants, the animals, the universe. Om Mani Padme Hum. So we're gonna have some walking and then we're gonna come back and chant the Tisha, the Prajnaparamita mantra, great compassion. So if you can make it, come back uh, for that.